0: Hello, and welcome to the
1: SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Gillery. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. You can help support the podcast by going to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash or to the podcast website seansrussiablog.org and click on the Patreon Donate button and join the table of ranks. This is the 100th SRB podcast, and I have to say I'm incredibly surprised by the success and the support for it particularly considering it's such a small niche. And by chance, this episode deals with a subject very close to my heart. Many of you might know that I wrote my dissertation on the Young Communist League, or the Komsomol, and its political culture in the 1920s. So I was very happy when I looked at the calendar and realized that Seth Bernstein was to be on the 100th episode to talk about his book, Raised Under Stalin. Young Communists and the Defense of Socialism, which deals with the Komsomol in the 1930s. Seth Bernstein is an assistant professor at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, where he specializes in the history of Soviet politics, culture, and society. He's the author of Raised Under Stalin, Young Communists and the Defense of Socialism, published by Cornell University Press. And he's also the English translator of Alexander Vatlin's Agents of Terror, Ordinary Men and Extraordinary Violence in Stalin's Secret Police, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Here's Seth Bernstein. So your book, Raised Under Stalin, Young Communists and the Defense of Socialism, examines the Young Communist League in the 1930s, and it's place within the Stalinist system. So I thought we'd start by having you talk about why the history of young people is important for understanding this period of the 1930s.
0: There are, are two main reasons. One is that youth had an enormous symbolism for the Soviet regime, for Stalin's uh, party state. This is the first generation, the one that was coming of age in the 1930s, that had either been born after the revolution or had never really known a Russian empire that was not run by, uh, run by Soviet power. And in fact, many of them couldn't even remember a time before Stalin. So we're talking about a group that's in some ways a test of the successes and failures of the Soviet regime. Um, if this young group is turning out to be uh, pro-Soviet, is successful, is um, more intelligent than the previous generation, more able to fight in wars than the previous generation, then the Soviet regime is a success. So that's the one side of it. The other side is that Youth are an enormous base of support for the Soviet regime. This comes from, this starts in the revolution, in the civil war, and this continues to be the case in the 1930s. Stalin's regime is very dependent on young people to do administration, to um, staff universities, to be students and uh, push forward Soviet knowledge, to work in factories as higher level specialists, and increasingly as the 1930s goes on to be prospective soldiers in a, a war that seems inevitable.
1: I also I want to have you comment on not just the the young people as as material for either the success or failure or even in the mechanics of the regime, but what about the appeal of the ideology itself of the the place of youth in the cosmology of Bolshevik um, you know
0: enthusiasm or or Bolshevik utopianism the idea that there's going to be a new Soviet man that comes up and uh, replaces the old way of living yes mm-hmm. yeah so I think that's just it that these young people are if you're looking for a new type of person who's going to replace old ways of living, live the way uh, this is the place to look at it these young people who have only been raised under Soviet power, who only know um, this way of living, who can take the regime away from the capitalist way of life into socialism and then communism.
1: So the main organization for for Soviet youth was the Young Communist League or Komsomol. So talk about what was the Komsomol and what was its purpose in the pre-war Soviet Union.
0: Well, especially before the 1930s, it's An organization that is uh, largely for mobilization. It's almost a junior version of the party. It's for people who can't, who aren't old enough to join the party, but are politically active. Some of them are in the party as well, but they're politically active as these youth activists. For them, especially again in the 1920s, it's a social outlet for like-minded people or young radicals in particular who often were not happy with the way that the Revolution was developing under the new economic policy a more moderate government than uh, under war communism so that's in the, the 1920s more although that some of the aspects continue into the 1930s increasingly uh, another goal of the Komsomol comes to the fore although this was also always there that's political socialization so the Komsomol is supposed to raise youth for for socialism to be good members of this new type of society. There's a final aspect of Komsomol, of the Komsomol's purpose, which is to provide new cadres for the regime. It's a, a place where there can be social mobility. It vets people to go to educational institutions, to join the party, uh, to become officers in the military. And these two last goals, political socialization and social mobility become increasingly more important and increasingly formalized over the course of the 1930s. In what ways? In terms of political socialization, there's a shift in the mid-1930s where Komsomol administrators, driven by party leaders, what so comes from Stalin himself, say that we need to be less involved in economic administration. We need to be less involved in politics on a big scale, in making... Uh, in enacting political decisions of the party, to stop being such, uh, you know, stop being a junior version of the party and to start focusing on raising youth for the future, to focus on education, to focus on cultured living, in quotation marks, uh, and increasingly to focus on military preparation as part of both of those, uh, education and cultured living. Then in terms of social mobility, there are, are... Departments that come up in the Komsomol towards the end of the 1930s that are specifically for dealing with um, gaining youth social mobility. They're looking for cadre placement essentially. Whereas before, the Comsomol had only dealt with um, its internal cadres, so so promotion within the party before the 1930s or before the end of the 1930s, and then towards the end of the 1930s, it's thinking more about placing young people into different positions in factories, in military, as well as in the Komsomol itself.
1: So so would you, would you say then that one of the differences, because in the 1920s, this system of, of cadre promotion or the, the Komsomol as a kind of essential step in one's social mobility isn't as concretized. So does this process get more streamlined into the 1930s, where the Komsomol becomes that, as what you're saying, this kind of institutional vehicle for promotion, for cadre promotion and cadre vetting, but also identification.
0: I think that's right. So, you know, in, you, in your work, uh, you said that the Komsomol is always a launching pad to social mobility, and I think that's right. But in the 1930s, especially towards the end, as the terror decimates the ranks of party elites and of um, industrial elites, industrial managers, and other administrators, there's a need to place new cadres, especially young cadres, into these positions. Uh, And this becomes more formalized. The other aspect of this is that perhaps there was an understanding before, uh, before this period that the Komsomol was for social mobility. But at the end of the 1930s, it's much more explicit, where there are meetings of Komsomol members who say, I'm not happy with my job. The role of the commsumal is to help me in my job. And this happens at the lowest levels. Thinking of, I'm thinking of a specific case where there's a, um, there's an organization, a commsumal organization among drivers and they boasted of the fact that they had gotten their members into bigger cars. So they stopped driving these tiny cars and they got them limousines all the way up to heads of, um, of small republics, like, the council places uh, an administrator at the highest levels of the Karelian uh, Karelian government, and they're boasting of that as well. But they boast of it at the highest levels and the lowest levels.
1: You know this this issue of of the Comsomol as as a platform for social mobility, though, always kind of um, confuse well perplexed me in a bit because on the one hand, yes, it, it in order to get like better employment, in order to get access to certain jobs, certain institutions, being a Komsomol member was highly advantageous, but there wasn't necessarily a one to one relationship between say if you were a high up administrator in the Komsomol, that doesn't mean you would transfer to becoming a high administrator within the party. It's almost like there's two, at least for the leadership, there's two kind of institutional tracks. You either take a Komsomol track in terms of being a you know a party administrator or a party track where you you know go through the party party sign. Do you see that as well or? does it become the sense of in order to be high in the party you also be have
0: to be high in the komsomol no i think you're right to some extent that there are these two tracks that if you are aiming to be a high up komsomol administrator you know you started as the head of a city organization in the komsomol and then you rose up and you became a provincial administrator and then you might you know become a, a head of or part of the central committee that's what happens with the high leadership of the komsomol in the at the end of the 1930s but these tracks um and then the other track is that, you know, you're a good comfortable member and they recommend you to say the NKVD and then you, your career moves from there and you become, you know, an NKVD cadre, as well as having comfortable membership and probably party membership at some point. Um Now, these tracks break down a little bit at the end of the 1930s, especially after the terror, where you see high up comfortable administrators becoming, um, graduating into party positions. So the head of cadres for the Komsomol, who's purged shortly after, he becomes briefly the head of the, Parat- the Serata party committee. Um, and then at the end of the of the, the period that I'm looking at, actually a little bit after, but in the 50s, uh, Mikhailov, the head of the Komsomol, after uh, Alexander Koserv is purged, he's the head of the Komsomol until 1938. So Mikhailov becomes a very high ranking party administrator uh, the minister of culture
1: i see so it's a bit more complicated than than i you know kind of assumed i never looked at it too deeply but it, i always found it strange that that you didn't have this one to one relationship but um but anyways um, um, i think
0: you're yeah i think you're right to some extent but you know it breaks out a little bit,
1: right, 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 I mean, especially after the terror which which we will get to um so you know as as you say, young people were a vital constituency and participant in in the stalin revolution i mean they're you know they're in collectivization they 're certainly in in the cultural revolution they're they're vital to in the industrialization of the Soviet Union, so talk a bit about how young people viewed that period of the Stalin revolution. And how did they participate in, in Stalin's revolution from above in the 1930s?
0: It's always difficult to talk about young people as this monolithic group. There are different groups within, uh even within the Komsomol, which is more of an elite activist organization, especially in the 1920s. Within the Komsomol, though, there's a group of very vocal radicals. They're generally workers or they're students, Um students who sympathize with the proletariat and they are pressing Stalin, the Stalinist leadership, the leadership of the 1920s to take more radical methods towards the industrialization of the country towards so-called class enemies to further this proletarian revolution that they saw as as being um, as being advanced during the revolution and civil war. That's one group. Then there's a large group of, of young people who are in the comfortable for socialization. Um, again, this is in the 1920s, or they're, they're there for, um, because it's their friends have joined it. Um, or they like, you know, going to parties and dances. And these groups, of course, overlap to some extent. Now, what happens at the end of the 1920s is that the, is that Stalin's group, as it undertakes a more radical approach, this revolution from above, where they're looking at collectivizing the countryside and more rapidly industrializing in the cities. These radical youth are pleased to, to help with that. But then the Komsomol organization uh, itself becomes more radical, and the leadership starts to, Komsomol leadership, starts to um, mobilize groups of youth who we're not necessarily as radical as the the vanguard towards collectivization towards industrialization
1: and 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 how do how do they i mean what do, what do young people do in collectivization i mean how i mean in terms of like what you've seen or even in the cultural revolution like what role do they play in that radical that radical period i mean are they uh do they you know, for example, I mean, I, I I always thought of it in this way: you're 17 years old, 18 years old, and you know, the Komsom organization is telling you, "Okay, go out and do X." You know, go collectivize this this village, go into this village, and they meet all sorts of res- craziness and resistance, and there's fighting and there's killing. Uh, in in the universities, they're denouncing professors, uh, they're denouncing each other. Um, One of the things that always struck me about the role of youth in in this period, in the Stalin revolution writ large, is that they're given an enormous amount of power to carry out this kind of radical program. Um, Can you talk a bit about about that
0: dynamic? I think that's right, that in some ways, there's so much asked of young people to be a force for change in the country, to to be mobilized, to undertake this huge um, undertaking, especially collectivization. And yet there are conflicts between young people and regime leaders uh, where when Pirigibis, these excesses happen, yeah, excesses, this very Stalinist euphemism, excesses happen where young people go into a village, for example, and they march a so-called kulak through the village at night naked. You know, it's winter. Well, this is, of course, an excess where young people have been given too much. Authority. Um, of course, regime leaders never recognize that it is the situation in some ways that has allowed young people to, to do this. But on the other hand, many of these, of the systematic excesses are not based on youthful enthusiasm, but are instead of based on NKVD's order, sorry, the Ogepehu's orders to go into villages and collectivize, uh, or to take a certain amount of grain party orders to go to collectivize, where young people, for example, there's a, um, an example I use in the book of this student who goes into a village with, another, with a, you know fellows from his class and the party leader has told them, if you don't get the village to agree to collectivize, you're going to be under arrest or you'll be kicked out of the consumable at least. So there are these threats that are leveled at them. They go into a village, they ask the villagers to collectivize, and they're laughed at. Um, and when they go back to the village and try a little more strongly to get the villagers to, to collectivize, then violence happens. So there, there's, it's unclear, um, to what extent youth in this revolution are perpetrators and to what extent they are the ones who are uh, also victims, right? Of a group in between that's been mobilized on behalf of this huge um, undertaking that's bound to create violence.
1: Right, 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 right. No, that's a, that's a really good point.
0: Um, oh, and I should also, oh, can I, if I also add that, um, Komsomol, because of their position as the vanguard of, of youth in, in some villages, there are no party members. So Komsomol youth are often the political force in areas because the Komsomol was much bigger. Than the party at the time, and so in some cases you have the comfortable leading resistance against collectivization, against you know then and, and um, trying to or or twenty five thousand of these activists and trying to uh, collectivize villages by force.
1: Yeah, this is a really important point that I think I think a lot of people don't uh, know about, and that is for a lot of people in the Soviet. Uh, union at, in the late 1920s into the early 1930s, in many respects, is particularly at the village level, that the Komsomol is the face of the regime, right? Because you just don't have enough party members out there uh, where you have them. And you might have so, a few Komsomol members and that, yeah, they are the what people see as the representation of, of the Soviet regime.
0: That's right. And so when you know, an order comes down from the district, the district party organization or the district Soviet, who's going to fulfill those orders? Well, often it's young people because they're the the Komsomol is something like two times greater than the party, and especially at the at the village level, it's much greater
1: yeah what what is the what is the membership in nineteen say nineteen twenty nine nineteen thirty what's the membership numbers of the Komsomol? it's about it's almost three million right at this point
0: that's right, so by nineteen thirty I believe it was three million.
1: One of the things that, that you know, I, I, of course, I looked at and, and many others have looked at who looked at young people in the Komsomol in particular in the 1920s is, is class, the issue of class. And, and class position was vital uh, in the 1920s for one's admission. And also, there was a lot of hand wringing uh, in the Komsovskaya press, but also within the Komsovskaya organization about the, comp- the class composition of the organization. Right? Are there too many peasants? Are there how many workers? How many uh, you know, so-called white collar bourgeois people, etc. In the nineteen thirties, though, you have a different dynamic to some extent because you you know you have the, the campaign against kulaks, uh, and you have you know people who are sent to special settlements and things like this. So, how did class work? in the Komsomol in the 1930s? And and what did they do with young people, for example, who were deported or as special settlers during collectivization?
0: It's important to remember that class in the Soviet Union wasn't like class in other contexts. It, to a great extent, was a construct that became a reality. This is, um, I'm not the first to think of this. Sheila Fitzpatrick has a great article about this, um, about ascribing class where um, class groups, which are supposed to represent uh, tensions within society between bourgeois and proletariat and so on, they come to represent the relationship of a certain group to the regime. And this is especially true of youth, where a young person born in 1917 has very little um, traditional class belonging. That person was not Did not have the proletarian upbringing that others had before the revolution. And in that sense, these person, these people are born into a certain class category. And yet these class categories have enormous impact in the Soviet Union of the 1920s and 1930s. It was much easier to join the Komsomol if you were from proletarian roots. So if your parents were proletarian or if you had been a a child worker um, or a young worker, before the revolution. Um, and conversely, it was much harder to get into the comfortable if you were a class alien element. So if your parents had been from the nobility, or even if they were intellectuals, it was less um, it was less possible for you to get into this group. And what happens in the 1930s is that when socialism is achieved, as Stalin says in 1934, so collectivization happens. Um, industrialization largely happens in the first five-year plan in the early nineteen, late nineteen twenties and early 1930s, and socialism is thus achieved. What this means is that the country is going to be cardinally, uh, is going to be totally different, and now it can normalize uh, its the the class recruiting to the Comsomol. It doesn't matter so much what your social class was before the revolution or your parents' class was before the revolution so much as what you are doing now. What this means is they put a much greater emphasis on education, on accomplishment, and less on a worker identity. Uh, this comes to uh to aggravate a lot of people who still believe in the in the worker identity of of uh, the Soviet Union and of the Komsomol in particular. So the Komsomol should be the preserve of the proletariat. Um and yet the council becomes increasingly the preserve of, of educated people. Now, workers still can join, uh, and so can peasants. What, where class persists as a, as a bottleneck for admission to the council is, as you said, uh, or as you hinted at, these anti, these are people like kulaks, supposed rich peasants, or really people who had opposed collectivization, uh, and had been sent to special settlements, their children bore the same stigma that they did, that their, the parents did. In 1935, Stalin makes a bold statement on this question um, that seemingly would remove the stigma. He says a son doesn't answer for his father uh, to a Kulak, meaning that Kulak should have the same rights to education, to join the Komsomol, to um, join the army, for example. And yet, behind the closed doors of uh, this Komsomol organization, there's a great deal of anxiety about whether class alien elements really should be in the Komsomol.
1: Do they do they come up with some sort of solution to this, or there's just a, a lot of back and forth as to you know opening the gates and closing the gates, or do they take it on a more individual level?
0: There's a gradual opening. Perhaps this is because of the ongoing mass operations where Kulaks were specifically targeted and uh, mass operations here 00447, uh, which was the biggest of these NKVT, um, operations against, against, uh, various groups. A great deal of apprehension about taking these people into the Komsomol would be accused of harboring an enemy potentially. Once the terror ends, there's more willingness to accept these people. Uh, and in fact, there's a correspondence between the head of the Komsomol, Mikhailov, and Stalin where Mikhailovs gather many, many letters from, from local organizations where they just can't figure out what to do because no one at the top level is willing to take responsibility for this and risk being called an enemy. So Mikhailov, you know, somewhat bravely, although he hedges, writes himself, I think we should let uh, Kulaks, or, you know, the children of anti-Soviet elements, in on an individual basis to the Komsomol. Uh And this is not because it's the right thing to do or because the Stalin constitution, uh, that was introduced in 1936 allows all people the same civic rights, but really because these people are going to be to us if we don't let them participate and if we don't monitor them. So there's a chance that they'll become more and more anti-Soviet outside of our influence. And Stalin uh, agrees with this heartily. So, um, they begin to take small numbers of of these um, so-called anti-Soviet elements with the idea of uh, uh, rehabilitating them to some extent.
1: Yeah, let's let's talk about the terror, because um, virtually, you know, all Soviet institutions uh, like, or I should say, like virtually all Soviet institutions, the Komsomol II was a target during the terror of 1937-38. Um, and, and to my knowledge, I think and you can confirm this or not, I, there hasn't been a lot of work on you know looking specifically at the the, the terror in the Komsomol, at least until, until you're you dealing with it. So talk about, um, you, but it's interesting because you describe the terror uh, in within the Komsomol as a moral panic. Um, what do you mean by that?
0: Let me start by talking about the terror in the Komsomol more broadly. There was an article by uh, this Russian historian, Grykhov, about the um, Rasprava, so the dealing with the Komsomol, you know, Stalin's dealing with the Komsomol in the terror, and that was in the early '90s. So there was a little bit of work, but there hasn't been a, a, a anything since then. And that was mostly about the leadership. And in some ways, as you say, the Komsomol resembles many other groups. There's a Komsomol administrator named Yakov Giro, who, as the terror just starts to unfold in 19, at the end of 1936, in the beginning of 1937. And some constable administrators are arrested alongside their patrons in provincial party organizations. Garrow says, you know, I wonder what will happen next if the person that I recommended to another party administrator is arrested. Won't I be arrested then? They're they're not dumb. They're starting to see these patterns that actually do emerge. And and he's exactly right that um just like the rest of the terror at the elite levels, these family groupings tend to be the, were the downfall of these people. So your patron was, uh, was deemed a Trotskyite, and then you, uh, are deemed a Trotskyite, and then your, uh, your own underlings are deemed Trotskyites, and so on. Um, now, how the Komsomol differs is that the terror takes on a certain narrative that I described as a moral panic, or as being part of this moral panic. Here, elite Komsomol leaders are accused of being Trotskyite degenerates, meaning that uh, they were Trotskyists, to start with. They were something to undermine the regime on behalf of this uh, broad Trotskyist conspiracy against Stalin's, Stalin's power, but also that they, their specific method of undermining the regime was degeneracy. This is, above all, by getting young people drunk and turning them into um you know, alcoholics, it seems. And this narrative travels pretty well. It goes down to from, um, the top levels at this purge plenum that happens in July, 1937 or uh, July and August, 1937 is when these people are purged. Uh, then there are small level local, local, uh, conferences and plenums where this narrative is spread and where these under youth secretaries are, are purged as well. And then, if you look at the local level, you see disciplinary meetings with Comsol youth, where someone is accused of impregnating his girlfriend and forcing her to get an abortion. Right. For right. example,
1: a standard trope from the 20s too.
0: That's right. And yet, the difference between the 1930s and the 1920s, or at least the terror in the 1920s, is that when his, um, you know, Comsol leader in his organization is is trying to discipline him. In this specific case, she says that you are, are towing the line. You're, you're almost on the verge of degeneracy. You're not only doing something that's immoral and just a bad thing to do, but you may actually be committing a political crime is, uh, that could be considered Trotskyism.
1: Ah. I see. So it becomes, it takes on this more. It's, it, I, to, to speak about the difference, say, from the 1920s, if I understand you correctly, is that in the 1920s, when you would be expelled from the Komsomol for something like this, you were just seen kind of as a, you know, a corrupt, morally corrupt, bad person. Whereas in, during the terror, it's not just that you are a morally bad, corrupt person, but you are now committing, it's a political act. It, ha, it has a stronger political right. connotation. Um, so, so how did they go about? Th- oh, no, go ahead. Do you want to say something about that?
0: Just to, to shift to the moral panic part of it. That this is not a moral panic in the classic Stanley Cohen sense, right? The, his book about, um, about the mods and the rockers and the moral panic that came of that. In the sense that there's no, um, free press that can, that is hoping to sell extra papers based on spreading this hysterical story about Trotskyite degenerates, or about hooligans, which is another um, another case I look at in this book. Uh, instead, it's spread from above. This is a narrative that's written from above. And in fact, Shdanov, uh insists on it being part of the, the narrative. And yet, you can see real panic at the local levels um, that their young people are going to turn into d- d- degenerates. So there are elements of, of the moral panic working. Uh, even as you don't have the um, the classic classic prerequisites for for a moral panic in the Stanley Cohen sense,
1: talk a bit about the mechanics of this because are they doing say mass purges or are they doing purges on an individual level? I mean, and and, and if you do, you have any scope of the numbers of of expulsions and if it also goes along with arrests as well?
0: My impression is that. They're doing purges on the individual level, meaning that in every organization, you have, you know, five people that you know belong to certain groups where, you know, you may know that they, their parents have been arrested. And that is a sure, a sure way to know that they are enemies as well. And they should be, or at least you may suspect they're enemies and that they should not, not be in the council. Now, there are, insofar as it's a mass purge, if there are people who have already been arrested, you just take them off the rolls, right? It's a kind of up-down vote that much. Where it becomes more, uh, more tricky is if people where you're unsure if they are an enemy or not. And they have a, a, a day in court, essentially, where they have to say why they aren't an enemy and, uh, and the people who think they are have to say why they are. And everyone gets to, to, to state their opinion if they want to. Now, in terms of numbers, uh, in 1937, you can see how the terror really gains, uh, accelerates in 1937. Because in the first half, there were 35,000 young people expelled from the Komsomol out of a population of about four million. Now, in the last half of the nineteen of 1937, 100,000 young people are expelled. So it really gains um, uh, gains momentum in the second half of that year. Now, in terms of arrests, uh, what's interesting in this. Feeds into my idea about the moral panic, is that there are far fewer people arrested of this group than in the party. So when party administrators are are expelled, they're much more likely to be arrested. Uh, in the party, about a hundred thousand people, according to the statistics I've seen, were arrested for 1936 to 1938. In the Komsomol, it was about fifteen thousand, and the expulsion numbers are pretty similar. The Compsomol actually may have a little bit more, you know, greater numbers of expulsion because the Komsomol was always a bigger organization. Well
1: let's also talk about though the, the leadership of the Komsomol and how the terror affected affected it. Uh because Alexander Kusarov, who is who ran the Komsomol from 1928 to 38, uh was arrested and shot. Uh the former leader of the Komsomol, Nikolai Chaplin, who I think was a uh OBCOM secretary at the time and other uh former leaders of the Komsomol were also arrested and shot um but what what led to Kassadar's fall in 1938 and, and what did it mean for the the internal politics of, of the Komsomol organization moving forward
0: Kosarov is an, an interesting figure because he's a, he's one of the more dynamic um he's he's arguably the star of the book alongside uh Nina Kesterina And he starts as this worker. He was actually, he's one of the last child workers. He was a factory worker before the revolution happened. And then he comes up in the ComSimal organization and in fact is a soldier during the the Civil War. Uh, Then he's this radical worker. He's quite um quite pro-proletarian, and he's one of the leading figures in the um in pushing for cultural revolution and pushing for a more radical solution to. The economic problems in the country during the new economic policy. And yet over the course of the 1930s, he becomes like the comfortable, a much more cultured figure, you know, cultured in the sense of being um, looking more educated, refined, wearing a suit rather than a uh, worker's leather jacket. Um, so, you know, go back to Cohen. He's, he becomes a, he goes from a rocker to a mod. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so during the purges, oh, and uh, I should say that as he has his transformation, he becomes a leading advocate for the Comsol's civilizing mission, a more cultured youth. Um, now, during the purges, he escapes the 1937 purge. He is forced to, uh, or it's unclear whether he's forced to, or he just li- willingly gives up his college. He delivers a list to Stalin of. Uh, names of people who he thinks should be arrested as enemies. Um, and he spends the rest of the year trying to defend himself. He has to deliver a speech. I, I've only seen it in um, outline form. I don't think it exists, but, uh, but, you know, I looked all over the archives for it because it's fascinating, but it's called My Drinking Bouts and it's just a list of people. So it's clearly, you know, it's probably the greatest speech in the world. It's, you know, a bunch of drinking stories. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But this is a guy who has a history of, of, quote, unquote, degeneracy. Now, at this point, or a little bit after, I think in September 1937 is the date when the NKVD starts gathering a dossier on him. Um, and over the course of the year, he has to defend attacks. Uh The big mistake he makes, or at least this is the, the start of the trial against him, the purge against him, is that he, Oiga Mishakova, a... Komsomol worker, you know, pretty high level in the central committee of the Komsomol to resign. Mishakova has been a big uh, advocate of purging more and more people. She goes to some ethnic republics in the Soviet Union and demands that their leadership in the Komsomol and then in the party um, be purged and arrested. And once she's uh, removed from the the Komsomol, there's a, a shift in the politics of of terror at the beginning of 1938, where um, the Central Committee and the Party tries to put the brakes on it, and all of a sudden, Mishakova has become this overinsurer, someone who is denouncing people to save her own skin or to you know try to advance in the Party and the Komsomol. So she gets removed, but she continues to denounce people, including Kosurov. Now, uh, in the fall of 1938, this this case is taken up with the Party Control Commission, uh, and Mitvay Shkiriatov, who be, starts to investigate Kosherov's dealings. People start to denounce him secretly, um, and he's forced to announce a special plenum in November 1938, uh, where the the main item of the agenda is Mishakova. So this is the the main reason that he ends up getting purged is that Mishakova supposedly was mistreated. Um, Kosherov has been Lacks in his dealings with the terror, but then they bring other charges against him. So his chief, you know, his right hand man, or one of them, was uh, this guy named Gorshenin. He was the head of the Komsomol's military department. He becomes the head of the civil, uh, civil, uh, c- the paramilitary organization, Osav Yakhim. And he's purged in October 1938. Um, and because he's a co-, co sort of patron or friend, there are all these questions about, or uh, sorry, not a patron, a client, uh, but connected to Khusarov. There are all these questions about whether Kosarov has been dealing with this enemy. And it turns out based on a Pravda editorial that, uh, a peasant responds to that Kosarov has been drinking on a boat with Gershinin. And in fact, Gershinin lost his shoes in the, in the Moscow river or burned them or something <laughs> like that. Um, Held the sounds on. like fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, this is proof positive that Kosarov is an enemy. He's been hanging out with enemies in these secret meetings. He hasn't been paying attention to the his own uh, chastising of Komsomol leaders for being degenerates. And for these reasons, these ostensible reasons, he's purged. Now, there's another reason, which is that uh, Nikolai Yezhov, who was the head of the NKBD from the end of 1936 to the end of 1938, and really is responsible for the implementation of the terror, he's a Kosarov patron or maybe friend. And Kosarov, in fact, goes with him to investigate when Sergei Kirov, the party leader in Leningrad, was assassinated. So they are part of the investigation team together. Um, and so as part of the campaign against Yezhov, it's likely that Kosarov was one of these figures that was taken down as well, even though this doesn't come up in the official proceedings of his purge. there are um, It comes up in... So, you know, you can make this circumstantial link, but then also it comes up in uh, Babulin's testimony. Babulin is um, the nephew, I believe, of Yezhov. And he mentions that Kosorov was always hanging out with Yezhov.
1: Yeah, it's just the logic of how these things unfolded. So, yeah. So, we, you know, we could certainly, I'd be happy to talk about the Komsomol all day, uh, considering our mutual interest, but I want to switch gears because not only have you published this book, um, uh, Raised Under Stalin, but you had translated and wrote the introduction to Alexander Vatlin's uh, Agents of Terror, Ordinary Men and Extraordinary Violence and Stalin's Secret Police. And this is a really, Vatlin's book is really unique. um, And I'm really happy that you brought it to an English reading audience because it, it looked, it, deals with the terror in terms of a microhistory and and with a particular focus on the perpetrators, on the NKVD agents that carried out the terror at the local level. So talk about this book, The Agents of Terror, within the broader history of of the terror.
0: So this book was written initially in 2004 by Alexander Vatlin, who, uh, by the way, is not a historian of the Soviet Union. He writes mostly on Germany. And he was working with, I believe, the, uh, um, there's a commission in Moscow City to, to look at the, uh, the victims of the terror from Moscow. Um, and what he ended up doing is looking at the case files of the victims of, of the terror. So these proceedings against them, where they were accused of um, sometimes ridiculous things, sometimes things that should not have been considered crimes, but were. And he found incredible materials. Uh, in particular, he found cases of the NKVD perpetrators themselves embedded in the people who were rehabilitated. These are the so-called purge of the purgers files. At the end of the terror, many NKVD personnel were themselves arrested or were asked to give depositions against their uh, colleagues, former colleagues. So what he's able to do with this is to write a history uh, where the I think the real innovation is to look at the motivations and the agency of the perpetrators. We called it agents of terror for a reason, not just because it's you know, catchy, um, or hopefully it is, but because it gets at the, the issue of agency. Um, so there have been many approaches to the great terror when you're thinking about the agency of, of those involved. And one would place an agent, the, all the agency on Stalin or on Yezhov and Beria, uh other scholars have looked at provincial leaders as mm-hmm. driving the terror. And then some have looked at um, denunciations by ordinary people and the role of social dynamics in the terror. Um, but what Wallin's looking at is not so much why the terror happened uh, in general. He's, it seems, is fairly convinced that Stalin is is the chief perpetrator. But he's looking at why it unplayed in the uh, why it played out in the way that it did, how the perpetrators chose specific victims, what their motivations were for carrying out the terror and um, and um, putting away people who they knew were innocent, more or less. Um, and I've tried to draw parallels in the introduction that I wrote for it to the broader literature on Nazi Germany, for example, and this is in the subtitle to Ordinary Men. So I'm thinking of Christopher. And in the case of Kunsovo, the area that, that Alexander Batlin looks at is the microhistory, this is a now uh, a municipal district of Moscow, but at the time it was a semi-rural district. What he finds is that these perpetrators uh, weren't motivated by ideology. They weren't you know, rabid Stalinists. They didn't necessarily believe that these people were enemies of the people. Instead, they were afraid that they themselves would be purged, that if they said no, they would be arrested. Uh, and in the case of Kunstvo in particular, they were ambitious NKBD officers. So they wanted to fulfill and over-fulfill. Uh, and then there's a third reason, which is that you could get rich off of, of murder in this case, that you could, uh, arrest people for their belongings. In, in this specific case, there's, uh, an agent who's really a terrible person named Koretnikov. And he, uh, clears out an apartment of all of its inhabitants, just so that he can take take it up as a, a residence. Yeah, just like um, Bulgakov wrote, right? Moscow, gay okay people, but it's apartments that have the real estate issue that spoiled them.
1: That was Seth Bernstein, an assistant professor at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow, where he specializes in the history of Soviet politics, culture, and society. He's the author of Raised Under Stalin, Young Communists and the Defense of Socialism, published by Cornell University Press, and the English translator of Alexander Vatlin's Agents of Terror, Ordinary Men and Extraordinary Violence in Stalin's Secret Police, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and the listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. There's no way I could have gotten to 100 episodes without you. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.